Acts chapter 3 is what we'll be looking at this morning. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 26. <clears throat> Acts 3, beginning of verse 1, says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and, and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Father, we ask now that you would <clears throat> teach us and instruct us from your word. Uh, help us to learn more about you, more about your church, more about your kingdom, and what it is that you're doing in the world today. Uh, through this miracle and this sermon by Peter that we see in the book of Acts chapter 3, I pray that you would just help us to have clarity in this text and help us to serve you better as a result of this time in your word this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
<clears throat> well, this morning we're back in the book of Acts, and uh, we're right in the midst of the early days of the Church of Jerusalem. Uh, the church, the New Testament church, was initially made up of the 12 apostles, some women from Galilee, and uh, Jesus' mothers and uh, mothers, mother and uh, brothers, and a few others that were followers of Jesus that had stuck with him uh, through his whole ministry and into his death and resurrection. Uh, they had been witnesses of Jesus raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. Uh, this was the initial group of about 120 uh, there in Jerusalem. Then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them all. They begin to speak in other languages, and uh, a crowd gathers around the house where they're staying. Peter stands up and he preaches the first sermon of the New Testament church. He preaches the gospel to them. And from that first sermon, 3,000 Jews converted to Christianity that day. And they were all baptized, they joined the church, and so we have an instant megachurch here in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, God is obviously working in some unusual ways in their midst. Uh, back toward the end of the previous chapter, you may remember Luke describing the early church. He said, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many signs, I'm sorry, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Uh, today we're going to see one of those miracles done by the apostle Peter. And uh, as we'll see throughout the book of Acts, the apostles did the very same kinds of miracles that Jesus did throughout his earthly ministry. Uh, they gave sight to blind people. They caused the lame to walk. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. They even raised the dead. And so uh, very much so similar to the ministry of Jesus, the apostles carried forth that work. <clears throat> and this was validation <clears throat> excuse me, of their apostleship. Uh, Paul refers to this miracle-working power as signs of a true apostle. And so the miracles functioned then in two primary ways. First of all, to Christians, these miracles and signs that the apostles were doing helped them to know who were the appointed spokesmen for Christ, the God-appointed leaders of the early church, the apostles. Secondly, the miracles had the effect of convincing those outside the church that these men were to be listened to. Uh, just like the miracles that Jesus did convinced many people that he was a true prophet, uh, sent from God. You remember in John 3, for example, when Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus and says, we know that you're a prophet sent from God because nobody can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. In the same way, these miracles functioned as a convincing uh, apologetic, if you will, of the message of the apostles. And so these miracles done by the apostles of Jesus validated their message. As the author of Hebrews said, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, that's Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard. This would be referring to these early believers who were witnesses of Jesus' ministry. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So you've got there in verse 4, various ways that God bore witness to the preaching of those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Uh, signs, wonders, various miracles, which seem to be done primarily, if not exclusively, by the apostles. And then you've got gifts of the Spirit, which I take to be things like healing and tongues and so forth. All of these are visible manifestations of the power of God. They were on display in the early church as a validation of their message about Jesus. 
These were eyewitness testimonies talking about the fact that Jesus had raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And so God was bearing witness to the truth of their message. Now, that's not to say uh, that God is no longer active in the world. God never heals anyone uh, miraculously anymore. That's not what I'm saying. But I would distinguish between the miracle working power the apostles possessed as apostles and eyewitnesses to the resurrection. I would distinguish between that and the occasional miraculous thing that I believe God still can and does do to even today. Uh, here's an example of what I mean. In Acts chapter 3, Peter commands a lame man to get up and walk. And immediately he was healed and able to walk. I don't believe anyone today has that sort of miracle working ability. Uh, but God still does heal. Uh, none of us possess the authority to command healing. Instead, we are told, for instance, in James 5, to pray and to ask God to heal. Uh, James 5, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. So, so God still does heal today, uh, but he does so in response to the prayer of faith. We pray, we ask God to heal those who are sick. Uh, that's very different than being able to walk up to someone and say, be healed. That, that sort of authority or gift to heal was what the apostles had. And we see one example of many such miracles right here in Acts chapter 3. Beginning of verse 1, we read that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Uh, twice a day, Jews would gather at the temple courtyards for the hour of prayer. Uh, incense would be offered up at this time. And so as the smoke ascended from the temple up into the sky, it sort of symbolized the prayers of God's people as they gathered, uh, going up to God. And it seems that the early church continued in this Jewish practice, at least for a time, a gathering at the temple for the time of prayer twice a day. Uh, this was one of those occasions, the hour of the afternoon hour of prayer. This would be around 3 p.m. And it says, as Peter and John are, are going up to the temple, verse 2, they saw a, ma a man, uh, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Uh, this was a very normal part of life in first century Israel. If you were a widow in that culture, or if you were uh, a man with some sort of physical problem, a blindness, leprosy, or a lame man like this, you really did not have a way to provide for yourself. You would be forced to a life of begging. Uh, this man was lame from birth, as we'll find out in the next chapter. He's over 40 years of age. And so for decades, this had been the reality for this man. He was a lame man. He could not walk, and he was forced to beg. Luckily for him, though, he at least had some people who cared enough about him to carry him to the temple each day during the hour of prayer. And that's where he would, he would lay there on the steps, presumably, of the temple and uh, beg for alms. The temple probably was a decent place uh, for him to be. After all, these people are coming to pray. And uh, maybe they thought, if I help out this poor fellow, this, this deed of kindness and charity will earn me favor with God. And so this was the routine for this man every day. Uh, twice a day during this hour of prayer, uh, his friends would carry him over, lay him there, and he would ask for alms. The text says he did this every single day. Every day they carried him there, and every day he would ask money of the large number of people that would be coming by. Verse 3, it says, Seeing Peter and John about to go to the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So he's thinking, great, uh, these guys are 
going to give me some cash. You know, normally if someone is begging, uh, everyone just kind of ignores them except for the people who are actually going to give them something. So the fact that Peter and John say, hey, uh, look, look over here, that gets his attention, gets him excited thinking uh, they're going to give him something. But verse 6, Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now notice this, we're going to come back to it later because Peter uh, makes a point of this, but notice what Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. When Jesus healed someone, he possessed authority in and of himself uh, to command the sickness to leave the body, to command the storm to be still, to command demons uh, to be gone. The apostles did not possess the same authority of Jesus. Rather, they were healing and performing miracles as an extension of Christ's healing power. So Peter, in a sense, didn't heal this man. Jesus did. Peter was merely an instrument by which Jesus provided this healing. Uh, this will become important later because people started to look at Peter like uh, he was really something. And this, uh, like, like as if he's on the same level of Jesus, in other words, because he's doing the same sort of miracles that Jesus did. And Peter says, no, I have zero ability or power in and of myself to perform miracles. It is Jesus who is working through me. Uh, this must have come as quite a shock to this lame man. Of course, he's expecting to receive uh, some cash. And instead, Peter commands him in the name of Jesus to rise up and walk. And he says this to a man, again, who had been lame from birth. He had never walked. He, he doesn't know what it means to get up and walk. He had never felt that. He had never done that. Verse 7 says that Peter takes him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, if you've ever been around kids, you know this is not how this works. No kid learns how to walk all at once. Uh, there's a process of a few weeks or even months where they first kind of stand up all wobbly uh, while they're holding on to something, a table or a chair or something. And then uh, after a few weeks of that, they try to take a step or two and then they fall down. And they get better and better until eventually they're able to walk. And even then, it's very careful, it's very wobbly and uncertain. This man had never walked before, but all of a sudden, the feet, the ankle muscles are made strong. He's able to stand up, he's able to walk, he's even able to jump. Uh, instant healing, total healing. And it's no wonder the man is jumping in the air and praising God. No doubt he had given up hope decades ago of ever being able to walk. Verse 9 says, all the people saw him walking and praising God. <clears throat> and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They were all filled with wonder and amazement <clears throat> at what had happened to him. So they knew this guy. He had been sitting there asking for money every day for years. They all recognized him. They knew that he couldn't walk. And so they are absolutely amazed at this sudden dramatic healing. Verse 11 says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Now this sets up Peter's sermon. And so just like in Acts chapter 2, God performs a miracle that draws a crowd to Peter, and he seizes the opportunity to preach the gospel. And so standing right next to him is this man who's now able to stand and walk. Peter has a, a living illustration right there of the power of Jesus as he preaches, 
a validation from God of the truth of his message. And so verse 12 says, when Peter saw it, when he saw the crowds of people astounded gathering together around him, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? So the first thing that Peter does is explain that he has no power to heal in and of himself. It's not like if you're godly enough or if you're super spiritual, then you'll have these kinds of abilities. Right away, Peter takes the attention off of himself and directs it to Jesus. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Again, he's speaking to a Jewish audience here. He's glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So speaking to these devout Jews gathered at the temple, he says, the God that you worship has glorified Jesus. He did it through the miracles that Jesus performed throughout his life and ministry, and he's still doing it today uh, through Jesus' 12 apostles. All of this is intended to prove to you that Jesus is the Messiah, but you guys killed him. He goes right to their guilt uh, in condemning Jesus to death. Just like back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter begins the sermon by reminding them of the fact that they are guilty of killing the Son of God. Pilate had wanted to release Jesus. You remember Pilate uh, brings out a man named Barabbas, a known murderer, and uh, he tells the crowd, who do you want to be released? One of these is going to be put to death. One of these will be released, Jesus or Barabbas. And they said, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. So Peter reminds them of their sin. Verse 14, he says, you denied the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. Just like in Acts 2, Peter tells of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection. You guys killed him, but God raised him back to life, and we saw him alive. And then verse 16, His name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And that faith, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. There's a couple of ways you could read that. Either Peter is saying that he, Peter, had faith in Jesus' name and was thus able to heal this man, uh, or it was the lame man who had to have faith in the name of Jesus in order to experience healing. So that when Peter says, you know, be healed in the name of Jesus, the man had to have faith in Christ for the miracle to, to take place. Either way, however you read that, Peter's point is clear. The miracle wasn't done by Peter. It wasn't done in Peter's name by his own power and authority. It was done through the name of Jesus. And the same life-giving power of Jesus that can heal this lame man who's never walked before can also forgive your sins. And so now that he's convinced them that Jesus was the Christ, that they really messed up in killing him, he's told them that Jesus has been, has been raised back to life now he instructs the crowds on how they can be forgiven of this sin and be granted eternal life. Verse 17 says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance uh, in terms of killing Jesus, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In other words, the death of Jesus uh, was all a part of God's plan to save sinners. You're, you're guilty for the part that you played, uh, but God is willing to forgive you still. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Once again, we note the grace of God in offering forgiveness even to the very ones who killed his son. 
Peter continues in verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So now we're talking about a future sending of Jesus. You guys missed the Messiah the first time. You guys rejected him and killed him. But you can be forgiven of your sins, and he will come back again. Times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and he will send Jesus again. Verse 21, speaking of Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter is now telling them about, about the fact that Jesus has ascended uh, to heaven and the future return of Jesus back to earth. He says, heaven must receive Jesus for a time, while all the things that God spoke by the prophets are being restored. But then, after that's done, Jesus will be sent back. We get a hint at when Jesus will return in verse 25. We'll get there in a minute. But first, Peter explains that Moses and Samuel and all the prophets foretold the coming of Jesus. Verse 22, Peter says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, speaking of Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. So this prophet, Jesus, will come to Israel, and, and Moses said, you'd better listen to him. Do what he tells you to do. Otherwise, you'll be destroyed. I think that's referring to the coming judgment against Jerusalem about 40 years later. Verse 24, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and, and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. Uh, we've gone through those prophecies many times. At the end of Luke 24, we went through several Old Testament predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Uh, back in the last chapter, in fact, in Acts chapter 2, we looked at several texts that Peter brought up uh, from the book of Psalms, where he quoted and showed them how they were talking about the coming of Jesus. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now let's look at that last verse, and this is where we'll spend uh, the rest of our time this morning, last couple of verses there. God has raised up his servant referring to Jesus, and he says he sent Jesus to you first, to Israel, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is why Jesus came. This is why he died. This is why he rose again. Notice that word bless in verse 26. The whole point of God becoming man, uh, coming to die for our sins, was in order to bless us. And that blessing is defined by the rest of the verse. Jesus says he, he, that Jesus blesses us by turning every one of us from our wickedness. Peter is emphasizing what true conversion is. As we saw back in his sermon in chapter 2, true conversion consists first of conviction of sin, then belief in the gospel, what he calls faith in his name here, and repentance. All of those components of conversion are repeated here again in chapter 3. This is what salvation looks like. It's when God turns you from your sins. He transforms your heart. He changes your desires. No longer are you a servant of sin? Now you are living for the glory of God and in obedience to Christ. And Peter says, this is why Jesus came. All that I've been telling you about the death of Jesus, his resurrection, all of it, the end goal was to turn every one of you from your wickedness. And so repent of your sin, 
Believe the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, and God will transform your life. That's the blessing. So in verse 26, God will bless you by turning you from your wickedness. Now here's the cool part. Uh, where else have we seen mention of blessing? How about the previous verse? Look at verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that blessing that God has promised back in Genesis 22 to Abraham is defined by that next verse as turning you from your wickedness. So Peter is saying then that all the families of the earth will be blessed because God will turn all of them from their wickedness to serve and live for the glory of his son. That's the promise of God to Abraham that is now being fulfilled through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. It's not just, by the way, that all the families of the earth will have the opportunity to receive Jesus. No, God's promise is that he will bless them by turning them all from their wickedness. All the families of the earth or all the nations. Uh, in Revelation, it's often described as every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They will all be blessed through the gospel of Jesus and the conversion that God works in the hearts of sinners. And so here's, I think, the answer to the question that Peter brought up back in verse 21. He said back then that Jesus would re remain in heaven until the time for restoring all things about which God told through the prophets. And I think this is what Peter means. God made a covenant with Israel. He said to Abraham and to his descendants that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then, as a fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, God sends Jesus first to Israel to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. But the promise wasn't just to Israel. It was to all the families of the earth. The blessing of this salvation will spread to all nations. This has been a repeated theme in the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Remember, uh, back when Jesus rose from the dead in Luke 24, he told his disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Then in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus ascends to heaven again, he says to his followers, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So it starts in Israel, in Judea and Samaria, but then it ends up in the ends of the earth. That sounds a lot like repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. Uh, all families of the earth will be blessed because God is going to turn them from their sins. And then Jesus will return after God has restored all things. So this then really sets up the bookends of scripture and of human history. At the, in Genesis 1, God creates the world and everything in it, and he creates humans to rule the world, to experience close fellowship with God, the humans, of course, rebelled against God. They chose to sin, and with that act of disobedience, they plunged the human race into sin, and they cursed the good world that God had made. And the story of Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the prophets of God throughout the history of Israel, that God wasn't done with the world. God wasn't done with people. We're broken and sinful humans, and yet God has a plan to redeem us. He sends Jesus to die for our sins, taking our punishment on himself. And then he sends out followers of Jesus who have been forgiven and transformed and now indwelled by his spirit. He sends them out into the world to spread the gospel.
of salvation. And here's the part that I think a lot of Christians tend to get wrong, or at least tend to miss. The mission of God to transform the world through the gospel of Jesus will be successful. A lot of Christians today seem to think we're going to fail. Uh, we'll, we'll try to preach the gospel and win the world, but in the end, very few people are going to listen to us. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the kingdom of God will overcome the kingdoms of this world. Light will overcome darkness. The gospel will be not only preached to all nations of the world, but the nations will be discipled. Uh, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here in our text, we get a glimpse on a small scale of what God is doing across the world throughout this age of the church. He's turning people from their sins, one by one, family by family, until the world is one, and then Christ returns. After all things have been restored, after all the families of the earth have been blessed, after God has turned every one of us from our wickedness and the world is made right, then Jesus himself will return. And the fellowship with our creator that was lost back in the Garden of Eden will finally and forever be restored. And so in those few verses, Peter explains to them who Jesus was, what he's done, and how they must respond. First, he tells them who Jesus was. Jesus is the servant of God in verse 13. He's the holy and righteous one in verse 14. He's the author of life in verse 15. He's the Christ, the Messiah in verse 18. He's a prophet in verse 22. And he's the one who has been sent to bless the world in verse 25. Peter tells them what Jesus has done. He's been glorified by God in verse 13. He's been denied and killed by men in verses 14 to 15. But he's been raised back to life in verse 15. And now Jesus offers to blot out your sins in verse 19. He's restoring all things in verse 21. He's bringing blessing and forgiveness to a world that is lost in sin in verses 25 and 26. This is why Jesus came. This is why he was sent to turn sinners from their wickedness, and in so doing, redeem the dark and broken world from sin. He's reversing the curse. And that brings us to the third thing that Peter tells them, not only who Jesus was or is, what he's come and what he's done, but then Peter tells them what their response must be. Very simply, in verse 19, he says, repent. Turn from your sin. Submit to the lordship of Jesus. For these Jews in Jerusalem, that would mean acknowledging that the one that you put to death, the one that you condemned, is in fact the Messiah. You must bow the knee to him. They had said of Jesus, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now Peter is urging them to reverse their sentence of Jesus. There's still time for them to be a part of his kingdom if they will repent. Of course, the gospel message hasn't changed. We are still to go into the world preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus and the salvation that he offers to blot out our sins, to transform our lives, to turn us from wickedness to a life of service to him. Just like Peter said in verse 26, such a repentance is a blessing. Living a life of sin leads to emptiness. It can never satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. Only Jesus can do that. And so we are to go out into the world continuing to spread this very same message of repentance for the forgiveness and transformation that Jesus offers. We're going to pick up in chapter 4 next week. We'll see the reaction of the people to Peter's sermon. Uh, needless to say, not everyone is happy. Uh, Peter ends up getting himself arrested for this sermon. 
And uh, that really begins the first wave of persecution that the church in Jerusalem experiences in the book of Acts. We'll get into all that next time. Let's pray.